Well, complete this sentence for me. If you want something done right, <laughs> everybody knows it. <laughs> everybody knows it. You could complete that sentence because it is a sentiment that everybody feels at least some of the time. And many people feel it pretty much all of the time, convinced that they have to do it themselves if they want it done right. It really does feel that way sometimes, a good bit of the time. Of course, it's really a bit of a cynical approach to things if you, if you think about it. And if we take that sentiment too far, it can really be very limiting to many things in life. For example, if if you want to expand the business, it's going to be very difficult to expand that business if you take the attitude that to get things done right, I, I always have to do them uh, myself. So it can be a very limiting uh, approach to, to life. And often, if we're honest with ourselves, get it done right is actually code language for get it done in the unique way that I want it done, or even beyond that, in the very peculiar way that I want it done, even though it could be correctly done in a variety of other ways. That acknowledged, we feel this way a lot, and there are reasons that we do. Not, not to pick on anybody today, but when the grocery bagger puts the bread underneath the milk, <laughs> we understandably have the thought, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. When the company you hire to seal your driveway splatters the sealant all over your sidewalks and your garage door, you have the thought, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. As I prepared for today's message on Hebrews 8, 1 through 13, it occurred to me that the person for whom this sentiment is most true is God. If you think about it, if God wants something done right, he has to do it himself. Now, I suppose this can be argued. I mean, after all, God has entrusted uh, a whole lot to us, his followers. He has given us the great commission. He's assigned us. He has trusted us to carry it out. In his wisdom, he must know that we can do it. At the same time, Bible-believing Christians recognize that anything good we accomplish, any fruit that we produce in our lives, it's not done in our own strength. It's done by God's strength empowering us and working through us. So do we do it or does God do it? We can say that both are true in a sense, and probably the best answer is that both together, that, that's probably the best, the best answer. But Hebrews 8 covers something where there's no both and to it. Hebrews 8 covers a topic where there is only one answer. If God wants it done right, he has to do it himself. And so that's where we're at today, and that's what I want to read. And uh, we've been reading together, but today I'm just going to read, and uh, you follow along 
as I do. I think it should be on the screen behind me. Here we go. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. It's very important. And said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. I mean, Hebrews, I hope you're appreciating this, that Hebrews is just so rich. It's an amazing book of the Bible. And I want to look at chapter 8 in two sections today. I want to share just a few thoughts on verses 1 through 5, and then we'll spend most of our time in verses 6 uh, through 13. Verse 1 again. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest. This, this line, we do have such a high priest, refers back to what we read at the end of chapter 7 last week in verses 26 and 28. Here's what we read. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus, our high priest, meets our need. That's the kind of high priest we have. One that meets our need. 
unlike the other high priest, the earthly high priest, whose sacrifices were always ongoing because they never truly accomplished what needed to be accomplished, Jesus sacrificed once for all. Not just addressing our sin problem for a year, but paying the debt of our sin for all time and fully enabling our reconciliation to God. William McNoddle notes that there were those, uh, that those who were trying to get their family and friends to reject Christ and turn back to the law and Jewish traditions likely taunted the early Christians with things like this. We have the tabernacle. What do you guys have? We have the priesthood. What do you guys have? We have the offerings and the ceremonies. We have the temple. You guys don't have a temple. We have the beautiful priestly garments. You guys have none of that stuff. And so when the author of Hebrews writes, we do have such a high priest. And then he goes on and writes, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere humans. McDonald says that he's answering the taunts of those who would draw people away from Christ. Here's what he's essentially saying in response to them. Yes, you have the shadows, but we have the fulfillment. You have the ceremonies, but we have Christ. You have the pictures, but we have the person. And oh, by the way, our high priest is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is the high priest that meets the need of the people that the Levitical priest could never meet. Jesus is the fulfillment that the types and the shadows only pointed to. All of the other high priests, they lived and they died and their time was over and the sacrifices continued with another priest. But Jesus seated at the right hand of God means a couple of important things. It means, first of all, the difference in all those earthly high priests, Jesus is alive. His priesthood never ended. And here's what it also means, that Jesus has completed the work that all the sacrifices made by all the earthly high priests were never able to to complete. Amen. We're told that in the history of the priesthood, there were 84 high priests, none of them able to complete the work. Only Jesus could complete the work. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. The one who, verse 4, reminds us was not qualified to be a high priest on earth, accomplished what all the qualified priests could never accomplish. Because while he was not qualified for the Levitical priesthood, you remember, he was and is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
the greater priesthood that preceded the Levitical priesthood and extended beyond the Levitical priesthood. And verse 5 makes it clear that the earthly priest served in a sanctuary that was a copy and a shadow of what was in heaven, but Jesus serves in the sanctuary that existed before the sanctuary. The sanctuary that was the template for the earthly sanctuary, which the earthly one only was there to point to the true one. Edward Fudge, I'm always tempted to laugh when I say his name, shares an interesting point that the first readers of Hebrews were impressed by the antiquity of competing religious systems. So the older your religious system was, they were like really impressed by that. And he writes here that since his readers were tempted to turn from Jesus to Judaism because Moses' law predated Jesus' birth by more than a millennium, the author here is reminding them that Jesus ministers in a heavenly sanctuary that existed before Moses. You want antiquity? Where Jesus is serving existed before Moses. And so these first five verses are full of rich truths. Jesus is the high priest who truly meets our needs. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament types and shadows. He is alive and he's seated at the right hand of God. He serves in the true sanctuary that existed long before Moses came onto the scene. And then we move to verses 6 through 13, which is where I want to focus most of this today. I want to start by rereading verses 6 through 8. They're very important verses. Here's what they say. But in fact, the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And then this important, this important line, but God found fault with the people. God found fault with the people. So we find three things in these verses that I want to highlight in the remainder of our time. Superior ministry, superior covenant, better promises. Christ priesthood is superior to earthly priest. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And the new covenant has better promises than the old covenant. So first, Christ's ministry is superior to earthly priest. There are a number of reasons for this. His ministry is superior because he offered a better sacrifice than the earthly priest did. They offered the blood of bulls and goats as their sacrifice for sins. Jesus offered himself. He offered his own blood as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Jesus' ministry is superior because through his ministry, the sins of men and women and boys and girls are removed instead of just being covered over for a year until the next sacrifice was due. You see, all the sacrifices of the earthly priest, all they did was roll back sins for a year, or in a sense, they covered them up for a year, but the sacrifices did not remove sin. They did not take care of sin once for all. 
but Christ's sacrifice for all who trust in him, it removes sin. It imputes Christ's righteousness to us. It makes us new people in Jesus. Christ's ministry is superior because it cleanses the consciences of those who trust in him. Instead of just reminding them of their sin, like the ongoing sacrifices of the earthly priest did. For those under the old covenant, every sacrifice was a reminder of the distance between themselves and God. It was a reminder of their sinfulness. But for those under the new covenant, Christ once for all sacrifice means, as God says in verse 12, which is a quote of Jeremiah 31, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Under the old covenant, condemnation was present in every sacrifice. But in the new covenant, with Christ having sacrificed once for all, we now live in the reality of Romans 8, 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The world is condemned. But for all who trust in Christ... Even though we live in this condemned world, for, for all who trust in him, for you if you trust in him, there is no condemnation. And Christ's ministry is superior to earthly priests because while their system kept mankind separated from God, only the priest could enter the Holy of Holies, Christ has opened the way for all of us into the presence of God. The curtain that separated God's presence from the people has been torn from top to bottom. We can come boldly into the presence of God. And someday, we will be where Jesus now is. Amen? Amen. So Christ's ministry is superior to earthly priests. And the second thing we find is that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The reason the author of Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 in verses 8 through 12 that we read is because those verses in Jeremiah make the point that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Note that Jeremiah was under the old covenant, living under the old covenant when he wrote these words, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. The promise of the new covenant is right there contained in the old covenant. The old covenant tells you it is coming. A better one is coming. Jeremiah continues with God's promise. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. So the, the old covenant contains the promise of the new covenant. And, and why does the old covenant promise the coming of the new? Why? Why is that needed? Verse 7 of our text tells us, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. If nothing had been wrong with the first one, we wouldn't have needed another one. Wouldn't have needed a new one. But there was 
a problem with the first covenant that the new covenant needed to fix. So the promise of the new covenant is contained in the old covenant, and the new covenant was promised because the old covenant was insufficient. It was faulty. It had a problem. And so Christ's ministry is superior to the ministry of earthly priests. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And then we discover why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. We discover it's because the new covenant has better promises than the old covenant. So let's discover what that means. Look again, beginning at verse 7, if you have your Bibles, because it's not up there again. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people. Emphasize that over and over again. It's really important. God found fault with the people. Here was the problem with the old covenant. The people. The people. We didn't live under it, but if we had been there, the problem would have been the same. The people. The problem is always the people. You may have recognized this in your own experiences. <laughs> you see, here's... Here was the basis of the Old Covenant. God promised to bless His people, and the people promised to obey God. Leviticus 26, 3 through 12, and many other places, but, but this one especially, tell us about this. God says to the people things like this, If you follow my decrees... And be careful to obey my commands. I will send rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops, and the trees their fruit. And that's the pattern. If you, the people, do this, I, God, will do this. And that runs all through the Old Testament. If you will, I will. The Old Covenant was based on man's promise to obey God but the people didn't obey God. So it didn't work. Like, the people were really disobedient. Like, over and over again, disobedient. Like, obedient for just a little while, and then not obedient again for a really long time. Remind you of anyone? Get out your phone, open the, the camera app, and hit that little button that turns it around and shows you yourself. Remind you of anyone? Maybe you see yourself in that picture. I know I do. I know I do. The old covenant depended on the obedience of people who weren't. Who were instead constantly disobedient. 
We see this in Jeremiah, which again is referenced in those verses 8 through 12 uh, of our text today. Here's, here's what we see in verse 9. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Why? Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And so I turned away from them, declares the Lord. There you see, that's, that's what it was dependent on. The people had to be faithful, and they were not faithful. And so God turned away from them. The problem with the old covenant was the people. The problem with the people was that they did not keep their promise to obey. The old covenant was insufficient because it was based on unreliable promises of unreliable people. The covenant required righteousness from people who could not produce righteousness, from people who were not righteous. So again, I know I'm being a little bit repetitive here, but the problem with the old covenant, it was based on the promises of people who wouldn't, who couldn't keep their promises. The new covenant is better because it's based on better promises. And here's why. Because it's based entirely on Jesus' faithfulness to keep his promises. It's based on better promises because the one who makes the promises is better. William MacDonald writes the following about this. The covenant of law promised blessing for obedience but threatened death for disobedience. It required righteousness but it didn't give the ability to produce it. The new covenant is an unconditional covenant of grace. It imputes righteousness where there is none. That's, that's really important. It imputes righteousness where there is none. And then it teaches men to live righteously, empowering them to do so, and rewards them when they do. And so catch that. The new covenant is one of grace not performance. Grace, not works. Our disobedience no longer nullifies the covenant because it's not based on our doing, but it's based on what Christ has done and God's grace. The new covenant is one of imputed righteousness. That's righteousness that we don't possess ourselves, but righteousness that Christ possesses but God counts it as though it's ours. He imputes Christ's righteousness to us. The old covenant required righteousness people didn't have. The new covenant gives us the righteousness we don't have by imparting Christ's righteousness to us. And then the new covenant does something else that the old covenant did not do and could not do it actually, if we, if we yield to the work of the Spirit in our lives, it renews our hearts. And it actually changes us. So that we're no longer sinful people trying to do what we can't do, but we're new creations in Christ doing what new creations in Christ do. 
It changes us. Verse 10 of Hebrews 8, again quoting from Jeremiah 31, God says this, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them in their hearts. It means it's not going to be an external thing that they have to try to have to try to conform to. It's going to be in their hearts. It's going to flow out of them to live this way. The new covenant credits us as righteous, even though we aren't, based on Christ's imputed righteousness. It changes our hearts. And of course, we know that that doesn't, like, it changes us, but then we're in a process of changing throughout our lives. That old man still still hangs around. So here's what God does with us throughout the rest of our lives then. He patiently works with us as we hopefully grow in righteousness. He patiently works with us even when that growth is slow. He patiently works with us even when we regress because it's all grace. It's no longer about us keeping our promise. It's entirely based on Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' earthly life where he always kept his promise of obedience to God. And now Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, stands in our place as our representative who has always kept his promises of obedience to God and he always will. He represents us to God, and because of his faithfulness to his promise, God honors Jesus' obedience as though it is our obedience and keeps the covenant even when we fail to live up to it. The scriptures teach us that we have died, and our lives are now hidden in Christ. Hidden in Christ. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This great song that we used to sing in the church Michelle and I were a part of when we first got married talked about how Jesus sees us through the blood of Christ. He doesn't see who we actually are. He sees who we are in Christ. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. The new covenant is not dependent upon us at all. It's entirely dependent upon Christ. It's entirely dependent upon God's grace. I want you to notice that all through the Jeremiah reference there in Hebrews 8, it's entirely about what God will do. I will establish my covenant, God says. I will put my law in their minds and write my law on their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The new covenant is all about what God does. It's all about God. It's all about Christ. It's not dependent on us. It is dependent on Christ alone who has never failed and who cannot fail. So the problem with the old covenant was the people, they were promise breakers. The new covenant is not based on us keeping our promise. It's based entirely on Christ's faithfulness. So here's what we learn from all of this. When it comes to salvation, 
when it comes to reconciliation with God, when it comes to not just covering sins for a year, but having sins resolved once for all, when it comes to living free from condemnation, when it comes to receiving the blessings of God, forgiveness of sins, again, salvation and eternal life. If God wants something done right, he has to do it himself. And that's exactly what he's done in Jesus, our great high priest, the mediator between God and us. And so here's the good news for all of us today. Salvation, reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, freedom from condemnation, living under the continual blessing of God, it all depends on Christ's performance, not your performance. And that's a freeing thing, if that truth will ever sink into your spirit. God's blessing on your life is not based on you. It's based on Jesus. It all rests on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so this means for us today, the same as what it meant for the first readers of Hebrews, as long as we hold on to Jesus, as long as we don't turn away from him, but we stay in him, we stay connected to him, we, we hold on. As long as we do that, we don't have to secure our own right standing with God. It's secured for us by Jesus. The author of Hebrews is essentially asking those who were tempted away from Jesus this question. Why in the world would you turn away from Jesus when your relationship with God is based on his ability to keep his promises? And why would you ever consider returning to a system where your relationship with God is based on your ability to keep your promises? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Christ's priesthood is superior to earthly priests. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The new covenant is based on better promises than the old covenant because it's based on Christ's promises and faithfulness, not ours. My prayer today is that this truth would go deep into the spirit of each and every person that's here today. You would leave here today knowing that God's blessing of your life rests on Jesus, not you. Just stay in Christ. Hold on to him and live free from condemnation. Live free from condemnation. It's not about you. It's about him. Let's stand.